Welcome to the Idea Week podcast, where investors and entrepreneurs share their wisdom and insights into investing, business, and life. The Idea Week podcast is brought to you by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Members of MOI Global enjoy special access to Idea Week, the annual winter summit that brings together investors and entrepreneurs in one-of-a-kind St. Moritz, Switzerland. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the conversation Charles Hoveler, Managing Partner of Norwood Capital Partners based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Norwood is a concentrated, fundamental value-based, long-short investment fund, uh, relies on primary research to build a portfolio of dominant businesses trading at a discount to intrinsic value. Uh, Charles has close to two decades of institutional asset management experience, and we've been fortunate uh, to learn from Charles as well as hear some of his uh, investment ideas in the past. And what I'd love to do in this conversation, Charles, is just delve a little bit more deeply into your approach for uncovering a great businesses particularly in the small cap space, where I think you have a focus at the moment, as that's where there are more companies uh, that are less well followed uh, by Wall Street. Uh, so with that, if you uh, want to just launch in and, and tell us a little bit about your process for finding those ideas. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for uh, having me uh, on this podcast. Uh, yeah, happy to talk about small mid cap type um, due diligence and, and filtering. Um, you know, I started in the institutional world, as you mentioned, two, almost two decades ago. Uh, so, and then really focused on small mid cap domestic and, and, and developed markets starting in 2003. So, I feel like at this point, um, you know, we spent a lot of time in this arena and, and hopefully learned a lot. Um, certainly the front end uh, idea sourcing and filtering is, is critical. And, and over time, we've uh, at Norwood developed some, some pretty specific tools to figure out early in the process if, uh, if an idea, a business essentially, is going to have a decent chance of meeting our qualitative and quantitative criteria. So maybe we'll split those and start with the with the qualitative side, uh, you're right. What you know, we are seeking businesses with uh, wide economic moats and durable competitive advantage, and that's probably not unusual in the in the concentrated investing world. So, I think it's probably more instructive to think about how we identify those. Um, and you know, we over time we've developed what we call the sources of compounding, and, and typically it's a business that, um, for one reason or another, has uh, durable competitive advantage and is able to grow revenue organically um, at high incremental margins. And, and so we find that one of the opportunities in, in small mid-cap especially is, yes, it's true companies are not as well followed. It's also true that it's harder to find companies that have true durable competitive advantage and, and will dominate their industries for a long time. But the opportunity is to is to develop an expertise there because 
we find that in small mid cap especially that um, you know Wall Street tends not to uh, model those companies very well. So you can find opportunities if you truly have a three to five year time frame, um, and importantly the support of a limited partnership base for a three to five year time frame. That the opportunity is often in years two, three, four, and five because a truly compounding business model just becomes so much more valuable over time. So, um, you know, on the qualitative side, we're, we're truly evaluating a company's moat along a number of metrics um, and thinking about the sustainability of competitive advantage, uh, again, a, along a number of metrics. Um, and we, we think that that process, while time consuming and primary research focused um, and frankly laborious at times, actually really protects our downside because in our experience, um, the truly uh, dominant businesses, the truly great businesses have a very, very low chance of, of permanently impairing capital for their shareholders. And so it's a primary risk management tool for us and something we spend a lot of time thinking about how to get better at, to be honest. It's very iterative. Um, I hope that in 10 years, I and we at Norwood are, are better than we are now. Um, so we'll keep working working away at it. Uh, on the quantitative side, um, we are just uh, laser focused on, on on free cash flow. I don't know how else to describe it. There are a few metrics that we look at, um, but if a company doesn't have a documented history of converting a high percentage of adjusted EBITDA or what we look at even more closely, which is funds from operations to free cash, uh, we frankly just aren't going to be interested. Again, a lot of it starts from inverting the process and thinking about how not to lose in an, in an equity investment. And to us, that means, sure, qualitatively, we want a great business. And then quantitatively, a great business that, that, that converts a high percentage of adjusted EBITDA to free cash, um, again, really reduces your risk of permanent capital impairment, which we think is paramount in a concentrated equity strategy. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a nuanced process. I won't bore you or the listeners with everything that we do on, on, you know, in the scope of this podcast, but kind of from a high level, uh, that's how we think about it qualitatively and quantitatively. And uh, how do uh, returns on capital employed figure into that and, and how do they relate to a free cash flow generation on the quantitative side? Uh, so very, it, it, we, we, uh, calculate returns on capital for every investment. Um, and it's an important part of the process. Uh, I used to 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, uh, certainly 10 years ago, and maybe even as much as five years ago, used to be a, a little bit too snobby, uh, to use a colloquial term about return on invested capital. And, and so, um, you know, we were missing opportunities, I felt, because, uh, you know, we're calculating a return on invested capital for a company or return on tangible capital, which was quote unquote too low, not at cost of capital. And the reality is, um, especially in small cap, that most companies don't return their cost of capital. And so then we started a, a data project to figure out where our best opportunities have been and, and how we can deploy more of our time into our, our most likely opportunities to get into the portfolio and drive um, significant returns uh, over time. And interestingly, one thing we found was a company with a, let's call it a mid single digit return on invested capital. 
inflecting towards the high single digits and eventually in a perfect world, a uh, low double digit return on invested capital is, is a, just an amazing investment profile for us, which makes sense to me because um, the key, one of the keys to getting out of small cap purgatory and one of the things that happens with the truly great small cap businesses is returns on capital will, will inflect significantly uh, upward over time. And so um, our return on invested capital uh, analysis has actually shifted from trying to identify companies that currently have a very high return on invested capital to those where we see significant upside in return on invested capital. That's very interesting. Um, in terms of um, industries uh, or types of business models, have you found uh, some pockets of the market to be more conducive to finding the kinds of uh, compounders that you're looking for? We have. Uh, we really are not industry focused here. Um, uh, my experience is uh, I just prefer a generalist approach. Maybe that's a myopic view, given that I've been a generalist my whole life. But um, I think that the more creativity humans have, uh, access to the better they perform anyway. And so I, I prefer the generalist approach. So, um, you know, there are some industries where we're not likely to find a durable competitive advantage. It's well documented, so I won't, won't go through all of them. But uh, like a lot of fundamental value investors, uh, you know, a biotech or a small um, technology company is not likely to, to have the sort of moat that, that we would connect to. Um, but uh, more specifically, uh, our strategy is to be experts in capital light growth models. And uh, we define that very specifically as companies that convert a very high percentage of adjusted EBITDA to free cash that can grow organically um, at a reasonable level. Um, and that of course have uh, durable competitive advantage, but um, we find that you know across industries, you can often find a business model that will deviate significantly from peers in terms of being both capital light and organic growth uh, friendly. So, um, you know, our filter is much more around the business model um, and the financial model than it is uh, by industry. And when you say a business model, um, maybe we can delve a little bit more deeply into that, uh, what are some of the features of business models that kind of um, result in a, a compounding effect over time? Sure. So uh, from a high level, the, the characteristics are, um, you know, we really start with organic growth and try to understand that dynamic first and foremost. But because oftentimes a company that can grow organically can do so at a at higher incremental margin than what the street models. Um, but those are two of the characteristics. And then we've talked about free cash flow conversion, but maybe it's best illustrated through an example. So um, if you look at the waste management industry in North America, the largest companies um, have done well over time as, as stocks because it's generally a good industry um, overall. Uh, Within the industry, though, the largest companies uh, through the 80s, 90s, and, and really most of the 2000s have been more focused on revenue growth and M&A and high-density uh, high MSAs um, than 
the company that we prefer, which is Waste Connections. So the way that this is developed is very interesting and, and has a dramatic impact on the, the business model of the actual company. So while Republic and, and Waste Management were acquiring highly competitive revenue, again, in dense M uh, MSAs, um, the problem with that is, Sure, you get some volume, but you're constantly giving up price and you're constantly deploying more capital against the increased volume that you're acquiring. So you end up with a much lower return on invested capital. You end up with much lower margins. You end up in more competitive markets and ultimately a lot less free cash flow. Um, and in spite of all that, these stocks have done very well. On the other hand, Waste Connections took the opportunity to really grow their business in very specific exclusive and secondary markets where there's a lot less competition, which drives much higher returns on capital over time, much better free cash flow internally generated that they've been able to use to buy more assets in the markets that they prefer. And at the end of this process, you, you have a 20 billion enterprise value company. So it's well known by everybody at this point uh, with this amazing asset base, uh, very attractive free cash flow profile and very high returns on capital. And justifiably trades at a premium to the group, even though it's not as big as the largest competitor. So even within a capital intensive industry like waste, man waste management overall, um, by understanding the kind of the unit economics of the business model, you can identify a company that converts over 50% of their adjusted EBITDA to free cash versus an industry which is, you know, at times 30 and at best case kind of mid 30s. So over time, the compounding impact of of that, of that conversion and those returns on capital is very powerful. And I assume that business also has recurring revenue characteristics. How important um, is recurring revenue um, in those models? Uh, is, it, is, is it present most of the time uh, in the companies that you find attractive? Yeah. Absolutely. It has been for a long time, to be honest, and I, I just generally sense that the, the market is, is becoming more aware of how important this is over the last uh, you know, three to five years. But uh, it's absolutely a critical part of our process. I think any, any, um, any investor that, that, that manages a concentrated fundamental value uh, portfolio over a long period of time, uh, you, you know, a high percentage of non-recurring revenue would be a risk factor that most wouldn't be unwilling to take. So it's, it's certainly an important part of our process. And increasingly, as I said, uh, we, we observe that in the marketplace as well. Talk to us a little bit about the management side of these businesses and um, the importance of having a, a great CEO in place or, or even an owner operator. Um, and uh, whether you found that to be a common denominator as well. Um, I have. It's critically important. It's, it's probably the most difficult part to truly diligence well. Uh, it requires a lot of background work with uh, people that the management team have, have worked with in the past who know them well, who've seen them in positions of leadership and, and can, can fairly evaluate if, if this is a truly uh, you know, great leadership team that, that will drive the business going forward, I'd say over, uh, again, if you have a long time frame, um, the incentive structure of management is critically important to us. 
Um, the confidence of management is critically important, and probably that's the easiest part to diligence. Uh, those two, those two pieces, and then there's there's the whole, you know, yeah. Owner operators tend to have the the, the, the proper incentives and, and a history of success, which, um, you know, as, as Buffett says, the the best predictor of future success is is past success. So we subscribe to that as well. We certainly spend a lot of time. It can be frustrating trying to diligence a management team because you can run into a lot of brick walls. But um, I have found in my career that it's, it's certainly worth the effort. And, um, there are a lot of cases where you start with uh, with a thesis on a company, um, and part of the thesis is that management will, over time, add tremendous value, um, you know, with the right industry structure and, and business model. And then you'll you'll just find over a five year time frame that um, you know the management team will that that'll actually happen in ways that you couldn't even conceive when you started the investment. So um, while we want to be aware of thesis creep, we're we're always uh, we always gain confidence in our long-term investments when we see management really innovating, really finding new pockets of value in an industry and, and, and being really creative over time. And, and then there's the whole executional piece, which, um, you know, it takes just a lot of conversations with management to try to, to try to understand if they're truly great operators. It's rare, especially in small mid-cap, um, but when you find a small small cap management team in the right industry that can really operate and execute uh, is pretty exciting. So it's something, we, again, we spend a lot of time on and really believe in. Charles, uh, talk to us a little bit about how you actually find the specific companies you end up uh, investing in. You presented at our uh, online conferences, uh, most recently Commerce Hub, uh, some of the other names, uh, were um, inner workings, I believe, and Lawson uh, products. Um, is this uh, are these companies uh, you uncover through screening or through talking to uh, other investors or other channels? Um, we don't do any screening here, and maybe we should. I, I don't know. I, I just feel like the data is in the past and. Um, I'm sure there's a robot or computer out there that's going to be a more effective screener than, than I am. So, um, you know, we're uh, almost militaristic about how we spend our time here. And, and I don't, I don't, I encourage everyone who works here with me and, and myself to just spend all of our time on the highest productivity endeavors. And for me, you know, in terms of idea sourcing, that's just two things. It's, it's reading everything we can get our hands on. Uh, manual ideas high on our list. We read Value Investor Insight. We read Value Investors Club. We read Some Zero. We read The Wall Street Journal. We read the same things everyone else does, I, I guess. But um, I just find that if you read and read and read, you'd be amazed uh, at where you find an opportunity. We read The Economist. That, that can be a great source of ideas. The other, uh, the other source is the network, certainly. Uh, there are two components to that. There, there are other investors, um, and there's a group of I'd say 10 to 12 people whose primary research process I really respect, whose incentive structure for the way they manage their funds I really respect, um, and whose uh, work ethic I really expect, really, excuse me, really respect. And so it's not easy to find um, true alignment amongst other investors. I just find there's a lot of kind of competing forces. And so we feel very proud of 
uh, you know, those friendships and, and relationships from people who are doing less to have uh, better work than I am. Uh, so that's certainly another source. And then the last piece is, you know, what I've found is when we do our industry work and we talk to a company's competitors, suppliers, customers, especially former employees, um, you know, you hear some really interesting things about the industry and what's happening on the ground and, and day-to-day in terms of the quality of a company's product and service and trends and everything else. And then you also hear uh, sometimes some really non-consensus things about other places and the other companies in the industry. So we always ask uh, our industry experts in, in, in our interviews, um, you know, if they had to invest money, where, where, where would it be? And sometimes you hear some interesting answers and, and reasons for it. So I'd say those are the three primary um, sources of, of new ideas. And, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I do find it easier after 17 years to filter ideas quickly. So hopefully we're getting better at, um, at spending time where, on the ideas with the best possibility of driving returns. And maybe as we finish up, talk to us a little bit about um, the concentration of the portfolio and how you uh, decide um, the appropriate sizing of uh, your best ideas. Absolutely. So uh, interestingly, when I started the the fund uh, back in, well, I made the decision back in the summer of 2010, so seven plus years ago, uh, my original strategy was to have effectively 10 positions at 10% each, give or take, and hold them for three to five years and spend a lot of time monitoring those positions and, and really live and die with 10 positions. And um, I quickly moved to 15, and now we're more like 20. And uh, there's some specific reasons for that. I think it's it's more difficult now uh, in developed markets to find um the conviction to have 10% ideas in the portfolio. It's easier to um, you know, kind of leg into a position at three or 4% and, and continue your work and diligence. And it always is a multi-year process. So uh, you never feel like you're done. Um, and so that's one reason. Uh, I think back in, well, I know back in 10, 11, and, and 12, um, especially after the panic of 2011, that there, there was some really low-hanging fruit in terms of 25, 30% IRRs and, and established wide-mode businesses where you can get a lot of confidence to have 10% positions. And frankly, it's getting more difficult, and that's fine. Uh, and then secondly, I found that um, having a position in the portfolio at a reasonable level really sharpens our, our focus, our, our mental edge around um, – doing all the diligence that, that we need to do. And so uh, the way it's developed is a, a lot of our core eight to 10%, you know, high conviction positions have grown out of positions that started at three to 4%. And, you know, there's a lot of volatility too in small cap, especially. And so, um, you know, in our world, as we enter the, what we, the ninth year of a bull market, um, you know, things are moving pretty fast. And so a position that, that three or 4% at one level uh, maybe it makes a lot more sense to be 8% if it goes down 20% for some short-term reason. And, and having a, a larger, a larger uh, you know, set of, of 3 to 4 or 5% positions in the portfolio allows us to um, really, really hone our analytical edge around those companies and, and act fast when, when opportunities arise. And conversely, um, things are happening fast right now. So uh, we found consistently that equity prices move around much more 
in a much more volatile way than, than intrinsic business values. And so, you know, you might have a, a 10% high conviction position that for some reason the market just connects to all of a sudden it goes up 20%. The risk reward is, is uh, significantly worse at this level. So you can trim it back into that middle bucket. So, you know, it's a, the position sizing I think is, is truly an art. Um, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time um, kind of triaging our previous decisions around position sizing to try to, to hone it as, as well as we can. I think it's one of the most important things that we do. Um, it's certainly iterative. Um, we've had really good success with our position sizing over time, and we have data to, to prove that. And so, um, you know, it, and I, you know, for me, I think that kind of 20 to 22 um, positions that, that matter in the portfolio is the upper band of where I'm comfortable that I can, you know, we at Norwood can maintain our, our analytical edge. So I'd be surprised if we got more diversified than that. But that's been the history of, of position sizing at Norwood. And so it's uh, something we're very focused on, certainly. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Charles, uh, for taking the time to uh, talk more about your investment process and how you go about uh, uncovering these uh, compounders. Uh, we've certainly uh, appreciated your ideas in the past, and it's good to uh, delve a little bit more deeply into uh, the process behind them. Great. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and I look forward to uh, seeing you at Idea Week in uh, February. Yeah, looking forward to it. It should be a great week. Thanks for including me. Thanks, Charles. Uh, goodbye for now. Okay, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Idea Week podcast, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Learn more at moiglobal.com.